Hi, this is Melissa from Minnesota, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcasts and true crime fan groups, and you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than two dozen episodes that you can binge, so it's a pretty good deal for just a dollar. This week, I'd like to thank Brandon C., Angela, Rebecca W., DSC, Michael S., Rochelle, Michelle R., Aiden L., Kristen M., Barbara J., Kimberly W., Danielle M., Caitlin O., Lisa B., Sarah R., and Patricia R. for joining. And if you are not interested in a monthly donation, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping us moving forward and keeping us ad-free. So thank you. On February 28, 1994, the United States, under then-President Bill Clinton, instituted an official policy regarding gay, lesbian, or bisexual individuals serving in the military, which became known as the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. It prohibited the military from discriminating against closeted gay, lesbian, or bisexual members of the service. It also prohibited discrimination against applicants interested in joining the military, as well as any type of harassing behavior directed towards gay, lesbian, or bisexual service members. However, the policy did ban openly gay, lesbian, and bisexual individuals from serving in the military. In other words, don't ask, don't tell essentially did not allow any homosexual or bisexual person, as long as they were a member of the United States military, to divulge their sexual orientation, to discuss anything that had to do with their relationships, or reveal any information about to whom they were married or any other details of their family. If anyone were to reveal that they were gay, lesbian, or bisexual, or were to engage in any related conduct, they would be discharged. 
The policy was eventually expanded to don't ask, don't tell, don't pursue, don't harass, as it specified that any superior officers were not to make any type of investigation into anyone's sexual orientation unless there was anything prohibited they specifically witnessed or they received credible information regarding any prohibited actions or behaviors. The expansion of the policy was a direct result of suspected homosexual or bisexual military service people being harassed or subjected to unsanctioned investigation. President Barack Obama, in conjunction with the Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, certified the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in July of 2011, and it officially went into effect on September 20, 2011, effectively lifting the ban on openly gay, lesbian, and bisexual persons from serving in the United States military. Today, approximately 6.1% of the military identify as LGBTQ, though President Trump has put into effect a policy banning transgender individuals from serving unless they are serving as their birth assigned gender. When it comes to equality, representation, and treatment of LGBTQ members of the military, things have improved, especially since the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Yet it is still a work in progress, and the efforts to be better continue. Historically, the treatment of persons who identify as gay, lesbian, or bisexual while the ban was in effect had been a culture of intolerance and prejudice, which often led to physical, sexual, or psychological harassment and violence if their sexual orientation was discovered. And today we're going to talk about one man who proudly served his country as a member of the United States Navy until it was revealed that he was gay. In this 116th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Alan Schindler Jr. was born December 13, 1969, in Chicago, Illinois, raised along with two siblings by single mom, Dorothy Schindler, after she was widowed when Alan's dad passed away. Alan was the oldest of her children, and as a child, he was outgoing, a good and caring child who was very close with his family. He had an exuberant sense of humor, ever the jokester, to a point he'd nearly drive his mother mad. He was also an animal lover and often brought home strays. Both Alan's father and grandfather served in the Navy, and when Alan turned 18 in 1988, filled with the desire to see the world and embark on a journey that would open up new adventures and experiences for him, he followed in his father's and grandfather's footsteps and joined the Navy as well. It would be the first time he would leave Chicago Heights when he was sent for boot camp at Camp Pendleton, located in San Diego County in Southern California. But in order to do so, in order to be a member of the United States Navy, he would have to keep a secret, a secret that he had even kept from his own family growing up, that he was gay. 
When Alan joined the Navy in 1988, all had been quiet. Without there having been any sort of substantial military combat in more than a decade since the Vietnam War. So mom, Dorothy, was confident and comfortable with her oldest boy being off at sea during this time of peace. He would call home about once a week, if not more, to fill her in as to what was happening with him on the ship that he was assigned to at the time. He was a radio man on the aircraft carrier, the USS Midway. It was an assignment that he was really excited about. The Midway is the longest serving aircraft carrier of the 20th century, from 1945 to 1992. Today, it is permanently moored in San Diego. It is the country's most popular naval warship museum, and it is the largest devoted to carriers and naval aviation. During its time, more than 200,000 sailors served aboard the Midway, and Allen proudly was one of them. One week he'd call home from Hawaii, the next week he'd be in Australia. It was exactly the adventure that Alan had been hoping for when he enlisted. And it goes without saying, Dorothy was filled with a tremendous amount of pride. She had been a Navy kid, she had been a Navy wife, and now she was a Navy mom. Alan had also started a personal journal detailing his experience on one of the most prestigious ships in the naval fleet, in which he described his assignment to the Midway as being a dream come true. But within a month of Alan setting foot aboard the Midway, on January 16, 1991, then-President George H.W. Bush announced the declaration of war against Iraq after the Iraqi army had invaded Kuwait four months earlier on August 2nd, 1990. In what would be codenamed Operation Desert Storm, U.S. forces were deployed into Saudi Arabia, and at the urging of President Bush, 35 other countries joined the coalition effort, which brought about the formation of the largest military alliance since the Second World War. A naval and aerial bombardment in an effort to drive Iraqi troops out of Kuwait commenced on January 17, 1991, and continued nonstop for five weeks. Then a ground assault campaign was launched 38 days later on February 24, 1991, by coalition forces, which lasted for 100 hours, at which point Iraqi forces were pushed out of Kuwait and back into Iraqi territory and a ceasefire was declared. The USS Midway served as the flagship for the naval forces during Operation Desert Storm and its campaign against Iraq, which means on board is the commanding admiral of a specific fleet of ships, but it could also mean that the ship is the first, largest, fastest, most heavily armed, and most well-known vessel. Allen described his involvement on the Midway in Operation Desert Storm as a pinnacle experience thus far in his life. Being a part of that brotherhood on the ship gave Allen a sense of togetherness and belonging unlike anything he'd ever known. For those who served on this ship, these people were everything to each other. They did everything together, and the camaraderie was truly an integral component of being on the Midway. 
When the Iraqi forces withdrew from Kuwait and the ceasefire was declared and the coalition had the decisive victory, the Midway sailed out of the Persian Gulf the following month in March of 1991. And for his participation in Operation Desert Storm, Allen was given a patch that he would have sewn onto his jacket. In addition to that, to commemorate his time on the aircraft carrier, he had a USS Midway tattoo inked on his arm. According to Allen's mom, he loved being on that ship. But his time on the USS Midway was short-lived. After only 11 months on board, he was transferred to the USS Bella Wood, which had been originally launched on April 11, 1977. Its home port had been in San Diego up until August 31, 1992, when it set sail for its new home port in Sasebo, Japan. Along the way, the Bella Wood even stopped off in Hawaii after the islands were hit by Hurricane Iniki to provide disaster relief, for which the ship was awarded a second humanitarian service medal. Its first had been awarded in January of 1981 when the ship rescued 150 Vietnamese refugees trapped on leaky boats in the South China Sea. So anyway, the Bella Wood set sail for Japan with Alan Schindler on board. And for Alan, well, he wasn't exactly thrilled with this new assignment. You see, the Bella Wood and its sailors had gained a reputation for being somewhat rowdy. I've seen it described as disorderly. There isn't a whole lot that can be found online as to specifics. I tend to think that things that are unbecoming of the United States military are aggressively kept out of the media as much as possible. And the military itself often stays pretty tight-lipped about the shenanigans that go on. But apparently the culture of the Bella Wood was a little bit more aggressive and the sailors were known to be pretty crude and unrefined. And this would be the complete opposite of what Alan's time on the USS Midway was like. The crew was more on the wild side. They often got caught up in arguments with crews from other ships that often escalated into brawls. According to one of Alan's shipmates, he had said in an interview that basically, when you're on a ship for months at a time, you don't have any breaks, you don't have any fraternizing with the ladies, there's no drinking, nothing. It's just you and the guys. Everything just kind of builds up inside, and it's unlike anything else, just the isolation of being on a ship. Things can reach a boiling point quickly. And as for Alan, well, his mom noticed that after he had been reassigned to the Bella Wood, his entire outlook about his time on the sea and on the ship had shifted drastically. She had no longer sensed the contentment and pride that he had once had when he was on the Midway. But what it was specifically that was getting to him he really didn't get into specifics with her so she's just really left wondering why he had suddenly become so unhappy she tried to understand but with alan's unwillingness to open up about it his mom just had to sit by and to try and be as supportive as she could be 
and hoped that he would be able to get past whatever it was that was bringing him down. She kind of figured that Alan didn't want to burden her too much with his own problems, didn't want her spending too much time worrying about him. On Tuesday, October 27, 1992, Alan had been on board the Bella Wood for about 10 months. The ship had been docked in Sasebo, Japan, and at this time the crew was getting ready to sail to the Philippines, so everyone was busy getting ready for the voyage. Alan had set aside a few minutes to give his mom a call. He had some news. He told her that he would be coming home soon. He expected to be back in Chicago in time to celebrate Christmas. Now, this was strange to Dorothy because Alan had not finished his commitment. His tour was not over. This was much earlier than she had expected, and he had kept the details scant as to what was going on. He just told her he was leaving the Navy and he'd be home for Christmas. But she didn't ask many questions. She didn't inquire as to why. The conversation that she had with him that day lasted less than 10 minutes. She figured that she'd know more as soon as he got back. They said their farewells, and they ended the call. Dorothy was left with the impression that Alan was looking forward to coming home and seeing his family. The paperwork for him to leave the Navy was being processed as he already had his meeting with the ship's attorney and everything was pretty much in order for his discharge. But the very next day, while Dorothy was at home preparing some materials for a church program she volunteered at, she received a knock at her front door. When she opened it, there stood a Navy sailor. She knew immediately that this was not good. It's never good when they send a sailor to your house. He removed his hat. He bowed his head. And he informed her that Alan had been killed in Japan. And Dorothy was like, wait, what? I just talked to him yesterday. He said he was coming home. How did this happen? He had not been in combat. How is it then he was killed? But the sailor bearing the heartbreaking news had nothing more to tell her other than Alan had been killed. He had no answers for any of her other questions. He wouldn't tell her how he was killed, if he was attacked, if he had been gunned down, or if there had been an accident on the ship. Like nothing. All the sailor could do was tell Dorothy that she would be able to get more answers later on, but for now, there wasn't anything that he was at liberty to share with her. He gave her a business card and told her she could call that number and make her future inquiries. Over the course of the next 72 hours, Dorothy incessantly called the phone number on the card, and yet nobody answered. We here listening can only imagine the pain and frustration of being able to do nothing, to just be stuck, to just have this single phone number to call over and over again that nobody picks up. And all you know is that your son was killed on the other side of the world. So finally, after three days, she got through to a naval officer 
and it was at that point that she was informed that Alan had become involved in a physical altercation with two men, that it escalated into a fistfight, and Alan died as a result of the injuries that had been inflicted by the men he fought with. Okay, so now Dorothy knows how Alan died, but she still got no answers as to why this happened. Why did this fight occur? Dorothy needed some sort of explanation as to why her son got into a fistfight with these men, but she was given no further information. Though she was told that the two men that Alan fought with had been taken into custody. So at that point, all Dorothy could do was wait for the investigation to play out, and she was certain that once the Navy completed its inquiry into Alan's death, she would have the answers to her questions and a complete and comprehensive explanation. I mean, this is her son. He proudly served the Navy. He died while under their command. They owed it to her, right? Well, not so fast. As Dorothy waited, she tried to be patient. She said a lot of prayers. She shed a lot of tears. Having to bury her son was not a thing she was ever supposed to do. No parent, right? And true to form, the Navy kept much of what happened to Alan tightly under wraps. They did issue a Navy press release, which was the only real official news about Alan's death that they put out there the day following, which was actually technically a murder, but they weren't saying that. They just said death. It said something along the lines of his death was a result of a beating that was unrelated to anything that had to do with race, nor did it have anything to do with illegal drugs. That was it. The press release itself was barely even noticed by any media outlets. Nobody picked up on it. But one reporter did see it, and his interest was piqued. His name was Rick Rogers and he was a reporter with an independent military newspaper called the Stars and Stripes. A member of the military being killed on base is very rare, so he jumped on the story right away. And he started wanting to know the answers to many of the questions Dorothy had been wanting the answers to. Why did this happen? Why was Alan killed? What perpetuated it? What led to something like this happening? As for the powers that be coming up with the answers, the vagueness continued. They were willing to explain what didn't lead to Alan's death. Like, he didn't die in combat. He wasn't killed by civilians. He wasn't killed by any Japanese nationals. But they weren't exactly saying what it was that did happen. And while the questions continued to swirl, with very few answers coming from the Navy, all Dorothy and now Rick Rogers could do was wait. Alan's body still needed to be transported home, and it was a process that took 10 days. And in the meantime, something else major was going on in the United States. Less than a week after Alan's death, On November 3rd, 1992, 
American voters elected Bill Clinton as president, which put an end to the 12 years of the Republican hold on the executive office. Dorothy, of course, overcome with grief, hardly even noticed. And she was still experiencing a certain level of denial that what she was being told happened actually happened. All of it was exasperated by the fact that she could not get any straight answers from the Navy. So she spent those 10 days waiting for his body, hoping that the next phone call would be news that this was all some sort of mix-up. But that wasn't the case. Alan's body arrived home to Chicago on November 7, 1992, delivered to a local funeral home where his services would be held. As Dorothy made her way over there, she had it in her mind that she still needed to confirm that it was indeed her son. She needed to see with her own eyes. And when she arrived, she was shown Alan's casket, which she stared at for several minutes. She had actually been instructed by the Navy personnel to not look inside the casket. Don't open it. It would serve no purpose but to compound the grief and the trauma of his death. But as a mom, she just had to. She had to see her son once more. And she wanted to hug him and kiss him goodbye. But she also wanted to make that final confirmation that it was no mistake that it was Alan inside this casket. Dorothy could have never imagined how horrific Alan's condition actually was. His face had been completely pulverized. And I'll talk about it more in a few minutes. Because dreamers, I don't always like to get into some of the more disturbing details of something like this. I have a hard time talking about traumatic injuries that a victim sustains. But I try not to sugarcoat things, but sometimes some things are better left unsaid. But you know, in this case, with Alan's death, it was so cruel and so senseless that in knowing and understanding exactly what the two men responsible for making him this way serves to demonstrate just how completely depraved and hate-filled they were when they decided to beat Alan to death. So as we go through the events leading up to and following the attack on Alan, some of the details are disturbing and difficult to listen to. So how did all of this happen? Let's back up a little bit. This all started to unfold when the Bellawood made its port of call into Sable, Japan in October of 1992 after having sailed out of San Diego. Remember, I had said that the sailors were preparing for their journey to the Philippines the following day, so many of the sailors went out for the evening to some of the local bars and whatnot. Late that night, just before midnight, an officer named Jonathan White, a cook on the Bella Wood, arrived at the Naval Investigative Services Department. And with one look at him, it was quickly determined that something had gone terribly wrong as Jonathan had blood all over his hands and his clothing. He informed the investigative officers that he had just witnessed a crime. 
like many of the other sailors wanting to enjoy their last night in port, he had gone off base to an area called Sailor Town, which were just a series of streets and alleys where the sailors hung out on their nights off. There were karaoke joints and bars, just places to let loose and have a good time before having to set sail the following day. After he had had some drinks, Jonathan decided to call it a night and started walking back to base. In between Sailor Town and base, there is a park and there is also a public restroom, so he decided to stop in to relieve himself. So the way this bathroom is designed, parts of the walls were constructed out of those Art Deco style glass block walls. You know, you can't see through these blocks, but they allow for natural light to come through and you can sort of make out silhouettes or like the shadow of a person if someone is standing on the other side. So as Jonathan is getting closer to the entrance of the bathroom, he started to hear some sort of sounds coming from inside. His first inclination was that someone must be having sex inside the bathroom. He was not going to go inside just yet, but he was attempting to try and make out what it was he was seeing through these glass blocks. And while he's looking at these shadows, it becomes apparent to him that this is not two people engaged in sexual activity. He can see that someone who is standing upright is jumping repeatedly up and down. This person is aggressively jumping with both feet and it is clear that he is putting all of his weight and might every time he comes down. And as this person is stomping, he is also singing. As Jonathan is peering through these glass blocks at the shadows on the other side, he's able to make out a second person standing off to the side near the entranceway of the restroom. And upon getting an even closer look, Jonathan starts to make out the shadow of something else on the floor of the bathroom. And as he struggles to try to make sense of what exactly is going on here, he soon realizes that the shadow on the floor is in fact a third person. And this third person is being stomped on hard by the jumping man. And as he stood there watching and listening, he could hear in between the grunts and the stomps the sounds of gurgling coming from the person being stomped, the gurgling on his own blood as he struggles to breathe, as he struggles for life. And it is unlike any sound Jonathan had ever heard before in his life, and it was horrifying. Jonathan quickly left the scene, looking and yelling for someone to come help, and this startled the two men in the bathroom causing them to flee. Jonathan found a shore patrolman and told him what was happening. He explained what he just witnessed in the public restroom and the two men rushed back to the scene, but by the time they got there, the only person left was the person who was on the ground being stomped. Whoever had done this was long gone. As the two men stood there trying to process what these attackers had done, the man on the ground was still barely alive, still struggling through his own blood to breathe. 
He had been beaten so bad, they weren't even able to tell what race he was. His face had been completely smashed in. When Dorothy opened up her son's casket, among the massive injuries she had seen on his face, it was clear that he had tread marks of tennis shoes across his face, forehead, and chest. And that was the moment that Dorothy realized that this was no fist fight. This was a stomping death. And this was a murder. So Jonathan and the shore patrolman carefully picked Alan up off the ground and carried him over to a nearby bridge. But it was at that point that they realized that the man was no longer struggling to breathe, despite their efforts to revive him. They laid him down on an overcrossing called Albuquerque Bridge, and that is where Alan Schindler succumbed to his injuries. Jonathan knew Alan. They were shipmates. But because of the severity of his injuries, he did not recognize who it was. An autopsy later revealed that at least four of Alan's injuries to his head, chest, and abdomen were fatal. His head was crushed in. All of his ribs were broken. And every organ in his body had been pulverized. His eyeballs had been sunken so deep, they were flush with his ears. His nose was bashed in so badly, it was no longer visible. His liver was described as being what it would look like if you stomped on a tomato. The medical examiner described Alan's injuries as being worse than if he had been fatally trampled by a horse, and more akin to someone who had been involved in a high-speed head-on automobile accident or even a low-speed aircraft that crashed into the ground. Eventually, Jonathan noticed the USS Midway tattoo on the victim's arm, and that's when he realized that this was Alan Schindler, his shipmate. He tried again to feel for any signs of life, but there was none. Alan Schindler was dead. He was 22 years old. An ambulance came and took Alan's body away, and Jonathan was ordered to the Naval Investigative Services Office, or NIS, which he did. And because he was covered in Alan's blood, he comes under suspicion right away, and soon he's the one being interrogated about the beating. Because he witnessed most of the beating through those decorative glass blocks, he was unable to give a good detailed description of the men that he saw but he did say he believed them to be white in their 20s and he was fairly certain that they were members of the military, but they were wearing their regular civilian clothing, not their uniforms. And he could see that they had on denim jeans and the one doing the stomping had on a denim jacket too. The shore patrol was radioed the information and the descriptions of the assailants described by Jonathan and a search of Sailor Town ensued. The Sasebo Police Department arrived at the scene to collect evidence and take photographs of the inside of the bathroom, which was covered in blood spatter and bloody footprints. Jonathan was ordered back to the ship, but he was still not out of the woods yet. He was ordered to speak to the ship's executive officer because, well, he's still a suspect. He went to the office of the executive officer 
and his captain was there too. And, you know, Jonathan is really nervous because he has no idea what's happening. They start asking him some of the same line of questioning that he was subjected to earlier at NIS. They want him to again explain what he saw, and he did. And Jonathan soon realized that he really isn't a suspect because the executive officer made it crystal clear that he was not to breathe a word about this to anyone. Nothing. Anything he saw or heard, keep it to himself. Not to a single person, not to a friend, not to your closest confidant, not to your family, and as sure as hell, not to the media. They told him, this must be kept a secret because it is a very real possibility that what happened to Alan could happen to him too. But also, you know, the Navy doesn't want any of this being reported to anyone either. Remember, they're keeping this very hush-hush, and they're going to continue to do so for many years to come. So with that, Jonathan is ordered to keep completely quiet. The following day, the Bellawood left Japan for the Philippines, and a very, very nervous Jonathan witness to the beating that ended Alan's life, was on board. Though they do not have any idea yet who was responsible for Alan's beating death, Jonathan is having this nagging feeling that the ones who did it might just be his own brothers-in-arms, sailing alongside him. And he had no idea if they knew it was him who reported the beating to the shore patrol. So you can imagine that he is constantly looking over his shoulder. And at the same time, Jonathan was given orders by the executive officer to clear out Alan's belongings. I personally have no idea who would generally be responsible for collecting and packing up Alan's personal effects, but I do think that him being the one asked to do this was no coincidence, as it keeps the numbers of people involved in this to a minimum. I can't see any other reason why the cook who was really not that closely acquainted with Alan, would be the one instructed to clear out his things. He was told to put everything in a plastic bag and that everything was going to be sent back to his mom. Among the things Jonathan collected was a diary Alan had been keeping. That diary did include a detailed record of what had been going on with Alan during his time on the USS Bella Wood, but Navy officials did not return this diary to Dorothy. And as for the Navy's official word to the media, it was more of the same vague and minimally worded press releases. Two people were arrested, but their names were not released, which wasn't a surprise for Stars and Stripes reporter Rick Rogers, because it is not unusual for names to not be released until official charges have been levied against the suspects, because it's just suspicion at this point. So it was just going to have to be more waiting. And the question continued to hang in the air. What was the motive behind this? The Navy included no information in their press release as to what it was that provoked this attack or what precipitated it. Nobody knew. And the Navy wasn't talking to either the media or to Alan's mom. Rick Rogers, of course, is chomping at the bit to find out anything that he could about the crime. And the less the Navy is saying, 
The more time passes without any information coming, the more Rick Rogers' curiosity is being stoked. So he's on the phone every single day, badgering the Navy for information. And then suddenly Rogers catches wind of an Article 32, and this really grabs his attention. What is an Article 32? Well, it's a hearing. It's a proceeding under the United States Uniform Code of Military Justice that would be the equivalent to a preliminary hearing in civilian court. There are several different levels with which the military can deal with infractions committed by service members. The most serious, of course, is a court-martial. An Article 32 hearing is mandatory before a defendant can be subjected to a general court-martial. The purpose, similar to the preliminary hearings, is to decide whether or not there is enough evidence to move forward with the court-martial. So Rick Rogers is thinking, great, this is a hearing to determine what sorts of evidence they have against the suspect who had been taken into custody, the details of the case are going to be laid out, which should include the details of what happened the night that Alan was beaten, how it went down, who did what, how it started, how it escalated, and the reasons behind it. So he's going to be able to gather up a great deal of information from the Article 32 hearing. So Rogers was calling, trying to pry information out of Navy officials. And they hold him at bay, and they tell him, we'll keep you abreast of any developments when it comes to the potential of this Article 32 hearing being held. But then soon, the Navy started to ignore his calls, which probably doesn't surprise us listening to this case thus far. The Navy is not only doing everything it can to keep the details of Alan's death under wraps. At the same time, they were actively attempting to coerce Stars and Stripes into publishing only flattering military stories. It goes without saying, Alan's beating death is an ugly mark on the Navy's polished veneer. But Stars and Stripes isn't having it. They are an independent publication. It has the protection of the First Amendment right to freedom of the press, and they are not willing to set aside what they feel is their journalistic duty to report the truth just because the military is putting pressure on them to publish only flattering military stories and articles. Rick Rogers has latched on to this story because the more the Navy stonewalls him, the more evident it is becoming to him that this is a case and a story that needs to not be allowed to be swept under the rug no matter how hard the Navy tries. And Rick Rogers is not letting up. And back in Chicago, Dorothy is just as lost and confused as Rick Rogers was. If anybody should be given a proper explanation as to what happened to Alan, okay, fine, they want this to stay out of the media, I get it, but doesn't his mom deserve some answers here? Of course she does. But she is not being told anything, and it is agonizing for her to not know and to not have the truth. That's all she kept asking for was the truth. And she started to be consumed with these thoughts that the Navy didn't care about her son. When her husband, Alan Sr., passed away, he had also served in the Navy. 
she actually received a letter from the president at the time, at the very least from his office anyway, acknowledging her husband's service to the United States. But when Allen Jr. died, she got nothing from President H.W. Bush. For Dorothy, it was like more salt being rubbed into her gaping wounds. And her calls to the Navy, they're also being brushed aside. They tell her, don't worry, we'll take care of it. Just go on with your life, it's being handled. But other than that, she was getting nothing. No explanation, no answers, no truth. Just, we're handling it. And they tell her, by the way, don't talk to the media, okay? Thanks. As it was closing in on one month since her son was killed, Dorothy was at her wit's end trying to squeeze answers out of the Navy as to what happened to Alan. And she reached a point where she had just had it with them and decided to take action to force answers out of the Navy. Alan's murder, it could have caused either one of two things for Dorothy. She could have chosen to sink into her grief and allow herself to be pushed aside as the Navy had been trying to do. Or a fire could have been lit under her and she was not going to allow the Navy to bully her into staying quiet. Yeah, this was her only son. There was no way she was going to stay quiet and let the Navy keep their secrets from her especially when it comes to Alan's life and his death. She wanted answers, so she began her own independent investigation. She started off with writing letters to her senators and her state representatives and to President-elect Bill Clinton. Dorothy had no interest in dealing with Bush, seeing him as being part of the problem. So while Dorothy is firing off letters to anyone who will listen from her little home in Illinois, Rick Rogers has uncovered some stunning information from all the way over in Japan, where this all took place. He discovered that an Article 32 hearing had surreptitiously taken place in Tokyo for a man named Charles Vins. Okay, who the heck is Charles Vins? Well, he was one of the two sailors taken into custody following Allen's murder. The media had not been informed of the Article 32. No reporters were there. Nothing was made public, which should not have been the case. A press release regarding the hearing should have been issued, but it wasn't. And the Navy would go on to blame the mishap on a bureaucratic mix-up. But Rick Rogers saw it for what he believed it to be. The Navy purposefully obstructing and hindering media involvement in the court proceedings. This only caused Rogers to become not only more curious, but motivated him even more so to keep digging for answers. What the heck is the Navy trying to hide here? There are way too many questions that need to be answered, and there is still one sailor being held in custody for Alan's death, but he hasn't been formally charged yet. So Rogers isn't just ready to roll over because he strongly believes the most important thing in all of this is that the public and especially Alan's family to be made aware of what happened here. He feels like everyone has the right to know and he's not wrong. 
the more the Navy tries to hide, the more he's trying to smoke them out. Then one day, Rick Rogers received a piece of mail at his office at Stars and Stripes that changed the entire trajectory of his investigation into Alan's death. It was sent to him from a source not associated with the Navy. And it was really the first piece of information he had been made privy to that gave him an inkling of what the reason was behind Alan's beating death. It was huge and it was important. But before he could go any further with what he now had in his hands, he had to speak to Alan's mom first. Because he was fairly certain that she had no idea about this information he had just received. And in the interest of journalistic integrity, he felt compelled to speak to her before moving forward. So on December 6, 1992, out of the blue, Dorothy received a call at her Illinois home from Rick Rogers. Still having no idea what was going on with her son's case, she was completely taken aback by his call. He was the first to tell her that it was two of Alan's shipmates that had been implicated in his death, and one of them was named Charles Venn, and he had already been quietly court-martialed. Needless to say, Dorothy was hurt, and she was livid. Here, all this time, the Navy had been evasive and dodgy, that from the moment that sailor came to her front door to tell her Alan had been killed, they'd known from the beginning that it was his own shipmates that had done this. And they'd never shared that information with her. And here she is, a month and a half later, finding out from a reporter. And Rick Rogers, he had more to tell Dorothy. And this information came to him by way of that letter I mentioned earlier written to him at his office from three people who worked in Sasebo. They were not with the military. They worked in Sailor Town, in some capacity involving entertainment or performing at some of the night spots that the sailors frequented. These three individuals had become acquainted with Alan, and during the short time he had been stationed at Sasebo, they'd become friends with him. So when they learned of his death, they were very shocked at the brutality of it, and they kept tabs on what was going on with the investigation. And as the weeks passed and the Navy had little to nothing to say about it, Alan's friends realized that the Navy was trying to cover up the truth about what happened to him, and that just didn't sit well with them. Not only did Alan's friends feel like the Navy was attempting a cover-up, they felt as though they were being intentionally ambiguous and unjustly withholding the truth from the public. So like Alan's mom, they started sending out letters of their own. But not to politicians, but rather the media. Every major newspaper, every news outlet, every television station, just to anyone they thought would listen to what they had to say about it. And the only one to acknowledge the letter and to respond to it was Rick Rogers over there at Stars and Stripes. Of all the letters that they sent, he was the only one. And he told Dorothy about the letter. It read, To whom it may concern, a friend of ours, Al, who was in the process of being dismissed from the Navy due to his homosexuality, was brutally beaten beyond recognition and left to die in a park bathroom urinal. The reason for the murder was reported by the Navy as a quote-unquote difference of opinion, 
and not the grievous crime of gay bashing that it was. Why should the death of an admitted homosexual be swept under the carpet by the U.S. Navy? Why does the U.S. military get away with this discrimination? This letter is being written in the hopes that Al did not die in vain. This was the first that Rick Rogers had heard of the possibility that Alan Schindler was gay. More importantly, he needed to know, is it true? And if it was true, and this was the reason that Alan was beaten to death, then this would change everything. Tolerance and acceptance of people who identify as LGBTQ has made tremendous strides since the 1990s. But the homophobic, biphobic, and transphobic violence persists in the United States and around the world. And it was quite common in the early 90s for there to be anti-gay rallies to be held across the country, headed up usually by religious leaders. And it had been compounded by the AIDS epidemic that was being falsely labeled as a quote-unquote homosexual disease, causing many to remain closeted out of fear of being targeted for violence. And in the midst of this, the new incoming president and his administration had made it a part of his campaign to lift the ban on gay and lesbian and bisexual persons from serving in the military. But as it was written, it really wasn't a lifting of the ban. The ban remained in place. You could serve in the military if you were gay, lesbian, or bisexual, but you had to keep it to yourself. You couldn't talk about it openly. You couldn't mention it. And you also were not to be questioned about it because you were still not allowed to be openly homosexual. If you chose to disclose your sexual orientation, you were subject to discharge. So no, it wasn't a lifting of the ban as it had been touted during the Clinton campaign. So as Rick Rogers was speaking to Dorothy, it was clear by her reaction that she had no idea that her son might have been gay. To the best of her recollection, throughout school, he'd always been dating girls. He seemed to like girls. She never saw any indication that would have had her believing otherwise. So it appears as though Alan never came out to his mom. And sadly, he would never have the chance to. Alan was gay. He was hiding it from his family. He was hiding it from the military. But Dorothy, at first, she didn't believe what the letter Rick had received was saying about her son and his death. But as Dorothy took the time to let it all sink in, she doubled down on her efforts to get to the truth. Because the reality was, with all the stonewalling she'd been experiencing, all the unanswered questions, all the evasiveness of the Navy, Alan's death having actually been a hate crime motivated by his shipmates discovering his true sexual orientation, of all the possibilities that have been swirling around ever since he died, this one kind of made sense. Alan was beaten to death by two homophobic shipmates. Eventually, Dorothy came to understand and accept what she was being told, that her son was gay and he was killed because of it. Did this satisfy her quest for answers and justice? In one way, it did. But in other ways, it opened up a whole new fight in her. 
to make sure that no mother's child is murdered because of a hate crime fueled by intolerance, bigotry, and fear. Especially if they are sacrificing themselves by serving our country in the United States military. Alan proudly served, and he was so motivated to follow in the footsteps of his father and grandfather. He was sent into combat in Operation Desert Storm, only to end up beaten beyond recognition by his own brothers. After Rick Rogers spoke to Dorothy about the letter he'd received, and she began to come to terms with the truth, he published his article in Stars and Stripes. The headline read, Slain Bella Wood Soldier Was Homosexual. And that is when the media jumped on this case. Dorothy's phone started blowing up. The news of a gay sailor being beaten to death by his own shipmates was everywhere. And I'm pretty sure the Navy was cringing. Rick Rogers also reported the news that the Navy had quietly court-martialed one of the suspects, Charles Vins, sentencing him to one year in the brig, which is military speak for a prison, particularly one on board a Navy or Coast Guard vessel, or at an American Naval or Marine Corps base. And a part of this slap on the wrist included Vins being dishonorably discharged and required to testify against the other person being held in custody for Allen's beating death, Terry Helvey. When Rick Rogers broke the story, Helvey had not yet been charged, though Vince had already been sentenced and was serving his time. Helvey was also being held in the brig in Japan, and up to this point, every move the Navy had made on the case had all been done surreptitiously. The Navy had made some public announcements that it was fully committed to seeking justice for Alan and his family, but at this point, nobody is really believing that they're being on the up and up about anything going on in the case. The biggest fear was that they were going to just process Helvey through the system quietly, keeping everything under wraps and issue him a paltry sentence just like they did with Vins. And gay rights activists who had caught wind of the story We're not sure the Navy itself would be able or willing to investigate the murder of a gay sailor with any sort of impartiality when their own policies clearly stated that gay persons were not allowed in the Navy. Essentially, Allen was in the wrong. So yeah, they did not want his unauthorized enlistment to be used against him. In January of 1993, the Navy finally turned Allen's journal over to Dorothy, and it gave her a glimpse of what was going on with her son during his time on the Midway and then on the Bella Wood. The time that he'd spent on the Midway, Allen was doing well. He was happy this was his dream assignment. Once he was transferred to the Bella Wood, that's when she could see a shift in Allen's overall disposition through his writings. He wrote about the harassment that he was experiencing from his fellow sailors, and the entire experience was amounting to going from living his dream to living a nightmare. In his journal, about a month before he was murdered, he had written that he reached a point where he could not take being on that ship any longer. He wrote in his journal that he had scheduled an appointment with the captain of his ship. 
but the captain refused to meet with him. So he took a bold step to get their attention. I mentioned his assignment was as a radio man. So he went into the radio room and sent out a call sign transmission out on a secure channel within his fleet. It read, 2QT2BSTR8. Too cute to be straight. And with the transmission of that call sign, Alan was letting his entire fleet know that he was gay. Because of this unauthorized radio transmission, he was ordered to the captain's quarters for a disciplinary proceeding referred to as a captain's mast. In his journal, Alan talked about the captain's mast, that it was scheduled for the following day, and he had requested that the proceedings be closed for confidentiality reasons. But the captain had other plans in mind for Alan's hearing. When he got there, Alan was horrified to find nearly 300 sailors were there to attend the captain's mast. And if Alan's shipmates did not already know that he was gay, they for sure knew then. And because they had been invited to see Alan disciplined, they took it as like getting the go-ahead to launch a harassment campaign against Alan with as much latitude as they saw fit. And they did. Anytime Alan was walking around the ship, they constantly knocked into him purposefully. Food was dumped on him, and they shouted homophobic slurs at him. And if anyone was seen being nice or sympathetic to Alan, they became targets of their harassment as well. So what was Terry Helvey's role in all of this? While he was part of a group of sailors that were much more openly aggressive and hostile towards anyone that they knew to be gay or even suspected was gay. And Helvey specifically gained a reputation for being particularly volatile and everyone knew it. And Helvey did not like Alan Schindler at all. And part of that had to do with the fact that Alan was in a higher ranking position than Helvey was. And he not only hated the fact that Alan was gay, but he also hated the fact that he had to take orders from him. Helvey had launched an incessant harassment campaign against Alan. Anytime, anyplace, anywhere that he had a chance to attack Alan on the ship, he took it. Alan had tried on numerous occasions to report the harassment to the executive officer, but no action was ever taken to stop him. So he was able to continue harassing Alan with impunity. And all of this, Alan wrote down in his journal. And finally, he had just had enough. In his journal on September 24th, 1992, he wrote that he had visited the ship's captain and announced that he was gay. His journal read, I admitted my true self and I told him, if you can't be yourself, then who are you? He agreed with that. He told me I still had to take what was coming to me. I accepted that, and he said that I would get off the ship as soon as it pulls into Sasebo. Following the meeting with the captain, Alan met with the ship's lawyer and had the official paperwork drawn up for him to receive an early and honorable discharge. As he waited to get back into port in Sasebo, Alan reflected in his journal that he was becoming more worried about the entire ship finding out about him 
and expressed a fear of being injured or worse because of it. On February 9, 1993, Terry Helvey was finally charged with Allen's murder in Yokosuka, Japan. He was facing the possibility of being sentenced to death if convicted. And you better believe that Dorothy and Rick Rogers were going to be there for it. But they also wanted something very important to come from the Navy itself. An admission that this was a crime perpetrated against Allen because he was gay. It was not a thing that the Navy had been willing to openly state at any point. And Dorothy didn't trust the Navy just based on the way that they gave Charles Vins that deal to plead guilty to failing to report a crime and sentenced him to a year, of which he served only 78 days. They wanted Terry Helvey to be held responsible. But just a few days leading up to the trial, the Navy was attempting to work out a plea deal with Helvey that would eliminate the possibility of him being sentenced to death. And much to everyone's surprise, the Navy actually took the time to consult with Dorothy about it. She was on board with Helvey not being sentenced to death because she didn't want his mom to go through what she had gone through in losing her son. And with that, a plea deal was reached. Helvey pleaded to a lesser charge of murder with the intent to inflict great bodily harm. And with that plea, the truth would also be coming out. Dorothy was going to finally have the chance to hear what happened that night that Alan was killed. It all came out at the sentencing hearing. Both Charles Vins and Terry Helvey acknowledged that they were in the park the night of October 27, 1992. They said that they'd both been drinking to excess that night in the park, which closed around 11, so they needed to either go someplace else or go back to base. And it was sometime after 11 that they noticed Alan, who was also headed back to base from an evening out. Remember, they were scheduled to set sail the next morning, so they were sort of cutting loose that night. So when Vince and Helvey noticed Alan, they began following him. Helvey telling Vince, let's fuck with him. I don't know if Alan realized that he was being followed or not, but as he made his way across the park, he stopped to use the restroom, and that's when Vince and Helvey followed him in. And as Alan was using the urinal, Helvey just walked right up as if he was going to use the urinal next to him, but instead, he just hauled off and sucker-punched him in the face. Alan immediately fell to the ground. At one point, Alan's head had been smashed so hard into a urinal that it cracked the porcelain. And then Vins jumped in and began kicking Alan in the head. But Helvey ordered Vins to back away. He wanted to beat on him, and Vins complied. He stepped back and watched as Helvey began stomping on Alan's head and then his chest and his torso and his abdomen. And remember, Alan's autopsy revealed that all of his internal organs had been pulverized. It became so violent and brutal that even Vins could not bear to watch anymore and began to retreat from the bathroom. And as he was backing away, he watched as Helvey continued to use the full force of his body weight in stomping down on Alan's body. The last thing Helvey did was press his boot into Alan's neck to ensure that he was cutting off his ability to breathe and to live. 
When Halvey was interviewed in the days following the killing, he admitted at the time that he did not like Alan Schindler, and it had to do with the fact that it was revealed he was gay. And in more of his own misguided thinking, he thought that if he made his homophobic feelings known, that it would actually help his case. In part of his statement, he wrote, quote, I want to add that I felt threatened by him standing beside me. He moved towards me, facing me with a smile and said, hi, I'm afraid of gays and I was scared. And dreamers, he didn't use the word gays. He used a different homophobic slur. I felt boxed in and I reacted. Then I lost control. The whole incident maybe could have not lasted more than a minute. Helvey thought that this defense here, this fear of Alan because he was gay, was going to get him off. And he went on to say that he believed homosexuality was disgusting, scary, and sick. But he does regret the incident, but does feel that it could have been avoided if a homosexual had not been allowed in the military. So yeah, he's shifting his blame here for his beating and stomping the life out of Alan to the military for allowing him to enlist. As Halvey's hearing was wrapping up, he offered his apologies to the Navy, to his ship, to his captain, and to Alan's mom, Dorothy. Was his apology to her genuine? I can't say. And it all depends on how Dorothy took it, if she accepted it or not. Dorothy did come to understand that Terry Halvey had been brought up in an extremely physically abusive home at the hands of at least one of his mother's boyfriends. So she did have a measure of empathy for him. And the irony in all of this is that one of the very few things that Terry Helvey and Alan Schindler may have had in common was that they both turned to the Navy for something new, better, and different in life. It was all just for different reasons. Terry Helvey was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He is currently housed at the Federal Corrections Institute in Greenville, Illinois. Today, he is 47 years old and has been incarcerated for 26 years. The Navy continued to refuse to release its official reports for many, many years. It wasn't until 2015 that the official 900-page report was released following a Freedom of Information Act filing. But all the links to that report that I could find did not work. The captain of the Bella Wood, Douglas J. Bratt, the one who did everything he could to stay quiet about what happened to Alan, was subsequently reassigned to shore duty in Florida. It looks like he's retired now, but he's still around, sometimes attending some speaking engagements in the San Diego area. Don't Ask, Don't Tell went into effect a year and a half after Alan's death. But in reality, it did little to solve the issues gay, lesbian, and bisexual persons faced while serving as a member of the armed forces. The ban was still in effect, and it really would have done little to nothing to help Alan Schindler because the harassment was not only allowed to take place on his ship, it was also encouraged. President Barack Obama repealed the don't ask, don't tell policy during his presidency. And with that, he effectively lifted the ban on gay, lesbian, and bisexual individuals from serving openly 
in our military. And as for Dorothy, she became an outspoken champion for gay rights. And anytime she speaks to a crowd, she is not just Alan's mom, she's everybody's mom. And that brings this 116th episode of California Dreaming to a close. I would encourage you to come on over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It's there we discuss the cases that we cover, share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but any other podcasts that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched or books that you've read, as well as any current news stories, posts about your pets, funny memes, anything. Just come on over and share. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page, like the page and leave a review or recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at California pod and on Instagram at California dreaming pod. I'd like to take the time to wish the following dreamers a happy birthday. Jessica P on November 2nd, Andy S on the third, Tammy R on the eighth, Aaron S on the ninth and Crystal P on the 12th. I hope you all had a fabulous birthday. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to. We have an eclectic roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports, entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You'll find links to all of our podcasts, as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I'd also like to take the time to thank all of our veterans for your sacrifice for our country. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. Christine, and I'd like to introduce you to the True Crime Files podcast, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on mysterious disappearances and unsolved murders. Every two weeks, we'll be releasing an episode that'll help you get to know a case really well without having to invest a lot of your time. Derived from the articles upon the True Crime Files website, you'll find that our show covers a diversity of victims and perspectives. You'll probably also notice that our episodes are narrated by Scott Fuller from the Frozen Truth and Status Pending Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to the True Crime Files today so that you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, being a part of our true crime community, and helping to shine a light.